I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, journalist, and producer Miguel Sancho. His new book is More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting-Edge Medicine that Cured the Incurable. There are approximately 1 in 2,000 children around the globe suffering from 400 types of primary immunodeficiency, uh, PI, uh, many of whom vaccinations aren't available due to age or compromised immune systems. For the parents of a child with PI, normal days can be filled with anxiety and fear. also amid a global pandemic. The quest for answers on how to keep your child safe is daunting. Miguel Sancho shares his family's incredible story as they search for a cure for their son's deadly immune deficiency and provide support for parents working through the same challenges with their children. With a constant risk of deadly infection, Miguel and his family spent six years in some degree of self-quarantine with all its attendant anxieties and stressors as they struggle to keep their son alive, their marriage intact, and themselves sane. Uh, Miguel is an Emmy Award, uh, Emmy-winning journalist and television producer whose work can be seen on 2020 and throughout the A&E networks, including the History Channel. Welcome to the show, Miguel. Nice to have you on today. Catherine, it's so great to be here, and thank you to to your audience as well for their time, and I'm I'm really excited to chat. All right. The chat's going to begin with, first of all, your Sebastian, your son, what is his, what's his diagnosis? And can you just tell us in layman's terms what that means? How does his, or how did his disease manifest itself? Sure. Uh, he was born uh, perfectly healthy to all eyes, both professional and and. Uh, amateur in 2012, we thought we were blessed with our second child, who was this, again, perfectly healthy little baby boy. But about two months into uh, his young life, he started developing a series of very strange and rather severe infections that required trips to the emergency room, hospitalizations, minor surgeries. And that was stressful enough, but the bigger stressor is being surrounded by doctors with you know, impressive degrees and credentials and reputations who are stumped and don't know what's going on and you're being passed from one specialist to another. And this went on for months and months and it wasn't until my wife, Felicia, who's kind of the hero of our story, frankly, um, insisted that we go see um, an immunologist in New York, where we're from, and she performed a battery of rather specialized tests, kind of peaking for the signs of a rare disease kind of hiding behind the camouflage of some usually normal symptoms or common symptoms. And ultimately, when he was about five years old, he was diagnosed with a disease called CGD. I didn't know what that means, so your audience shouldn't be in the least bit uh, um, embarrassed to not know. Uh, And basically, it's called chronic granulomatose disorder, but what it means is that uh, one of the important cells in his immune system, the neutrophil, wasn't functioning. So he could not fight off um, several important and common bacteria and fungal uh, pathogens that normal people you know, might get a little sick with but then recover from. Um, for him, those infections could easily have been a death sentence. So that kind of plunged us. First of all, it was good to know on the one hand that it was... Uh, we had an answer. We knew what it was. 
But the flip side of it was we were told that, you know, our lives as we understood them were going to be completely upended, and our expectations for our son uh, were going to have to be radically recalibrated as well. So now, this is a genetic disease, so he inherited it from from your wife, right, from Felicia? It is an X-linked mutation on the X chromosome, yes. So it was a recessive gene um, that was kind of hiding out uh, on one of my beloved wives' X chromosomes, and yes, um, we got unlucky in that, you know, you get two X chromosomes when you're um, a female, and the so-called bad X is the one that was passed on to Sebastian, my son. Um, you know, what was interesting was in your no book, that, yeah, I was just going to say, because uh, I, I think you, in the book, you said that she herself, although she wasn't even aware of it, did, ha- just as a carrier, had some symptoms herself fatigue, some of these kind of, I don't know, call them like mm-hmm. insidious or amorphous or whatever you want to call them, So and didn't realize that she was a carrier, obviously. But um, after Sebastian was diagnosed, then she too could feel that she had some some symptoms that, that, that are, that one, I, I didn't realize that carriers also had symptoms, I guess is my statement or question. Yeah, well, you, you don't don't feel bad because modern science really didn't know it until very recently either. I mean, the disease itself was only kind of identified about 60 years ago. Um, and then only within the last five or ten years are the um, immunologists um, starting to understand that even though uh, a carrier might not have a full-blown expression of the phenotype uh, of the disorder... Uh, there's a constellation of kind of minor symptoms that they nevertheless very, are very likely to experience. And it's helpful because now they're starting to give it proper attention and give it proper treatment so that, you know, you can just imagine if you're a mother and you're dealing with the diagnosis of this um, very serious disease with your baby child, and that on top of that you've got your own kind of... Um, a genetically inherited um, condition by a very mild form of it, you got to deal with it. It can be very, very tough for the mothers on a number of levels. And so it's, it's great news that uh, the researchers are starting to pay attention to that. And, and I'm proud to say that Felicia is kind of part of that research now, too. Yeah. Is this, I mean, I know today, and you know, you, uh, this was like 10 years ago, this is a long time ago in terms of all this research, but like today, they give you a huge battery of tests, ch- testing for genetic diseases for the, if you're pregnant, if one is pregnant. And is this one of them that they, do you know, uh, is this one of the diseases that they no. test for? It isn't. No, no, no. When you, when you have your amnio or your genetic testing, yeah. uh, which we, which we did in both of our uh, children, uh, you know, they test for some of the more common things like uh, trisomy and uh, Down syndrome and, you know, things that um, can, are more likely to pop up. Uh, particularly if the mother is of what they believe the the nice term is advanced age. My wife was 35 when uh, Sebastian was born. So, um, but no, I mean, there's, there's, as you mentioned, there's hundreds and hundreds of rare diseases and disorders, and testing for all of them, you know, would, you know, be in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Um, so you know, that's why, you know, it's just very important for... Um, if you have a history of something like that in your family, to you know maybe identify that in the course of the uh, the prenatal diagnostics and conceivably do a test um, for any one given disease if you know that there's a history of it in the family. 
but we didn't know. We, it was like you know, years later, um, we did a fair amount of genealogical analysis, and we found out that one of Felicia's, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but one of Felicia's great-grandmothers, who was uh, from Finland, gave birth to uh, two boys who uh, died in, uh, uh, like at age three or four. And this was back like in the late 19th century, I believe. So, you know, the disease wasn't identified. And as you well know, you know, for the vast majority of human history, it was just understood that some babies don't make it. And, uh, you know, there, there wasn't a heck of a lot of uh, investigation um, or science to be done to begin with. But uh, so that's the closest we can come to kind of tracing any kind of previous instance of the disease in the family tree. Okay, so your family gets diagnosed with this disease, and then, as you say in the book, it's the before and after, because your life total, completely changes. There'll never be the before again. This is the after. It's like, and, and then what? What was it like for you? I would imagine, I mean, I think you talked about it a little in the book, but like the guilt as a parent or the guilt or your wife feeling guilty because this was her genetic uh, disease, all of those kinds of, talk about some of that because that's the, the you know the, the the stuff that I think parents uh, when they get this kind of a diagnosis have to deal with and here's your beautiful baby boy and now he has this genetic disease and um, you know parents feeling do feel responsible you're absolutely right Catherine I mean I think we can agree that if you're if, if you're having a child intentionally if you've decided to have a child it's inherently an optimistic act, right? It's a bet on the future, right? If you thought the world was ending in six months, you wouldn't get pregnant this weekend, right? Um, so you go into it with this very firm belief that things are going to be okay, that the, you know, you're, you're having this child and it's going to grow and thrive and there's going to be a bright future, and you understand that life isn't perfect, but you know, you're, again, wagering that on balance um, the good times are going to outweigh the bad times. And then when you get hit with something like this, and, and you know, the book details in some, in some, what I hope is an honest way, the fact that neither my wife or I had really ever dealt with significant hardship before, right? We were not, like, fantastically wealthy or anything, but we would certainly consider ourselves blessed, and we had a lot to be grateful for. And we really hadn't been tested in a way that a lot of other people have in other parts of the world or are um, born in different circumstances. So we didn't have the experience of having some sort of problem that you couldn't talk or work or, um, you know, pay your way out of. Um, so this was a major blow <laughs> to our entire understanding of how the world worked. And then, as you said, on top of that, you know, and the, the guilt thing, you know, it's terrible because, of course, it's nobody's fault. Um, but those creeping suspicions or something, and it wasn't just with my wife. For the for the book, I interviewed you know several mothers um, of sons with this with this condition, and it's pretty common that you know even though you did nothing wrong, it's not like you were pounding vodka during the third trimester of your pregnancy. Right. Um, you were being completely responsible. Nevertheless, there's this there's this shame and this feeling of inadequacy and. Um, um, maladjustment that that comes, an alienation that comes when, quote-unquote, you have, quote-unquote, given this disease to your child. 
And then you as the parent, and I'm drawing from some of my own experiences, are making life and death decisions for your kid. And you have no idea at that point, particularly what you know, you're know you doing. And then I, I remember having to decide one of my sons had to have surgery. And I thought, I'm deciding that he has to have surgery. Did I make the right decision? Did I go to the right place? Did I have the right doctor? If it were for myself or my spouse or my partner, okay, fine. But when it's your kid, it's like... There, uh, to me, anyway, and, and I, I got a sense of that in the book, too, because you're making the decisions. He's not making the decisions, these life and death decisions about his health and his future. You're absolutely correct, and it's not one of those diseases where, like, the path forward is clear. Like, I, I often compare it to leukemia. I wouldn't wish leukemia on anybody, but in many cases, one of the silver linings of leukemia is you know what you have to do. You know, it, it, in, in many cases, it's you have to get a bone marrow or a stem cell transplant, or it's likely that you will die within eight months, right? So the path clears forward. Um, with our condition, it, it, first of all, it's a rare disease, so there's not a lot of research um, to study and to base a decision on, right? It's not like... Um, it's not like lung cancer, which has been studied, you know, in literally millions of patients. Uh, so, you know, both decisions, big and small, are always this kind of risk-reward calculus that can completely, you know, get you hung up on the on the second-guessing of whether or not you're doing the right thing. It can cause marital friction because one person's risk tolerance might be different from another person's risk tolerance, and the, the, depending on what the kind of the value is of the whatever activity it is that you're considered risking. And the big picture for us was... Yeah, should we go ahead and try to explore the one known curative treatment, which was, in our case, a stem cell transplant, most commonly known as a bone transplant, um, that could cure him but could also kill him. The procedure itself could kill him. Or, on the flip side, should we try to manage the disease? And I really want to emphasize that there are new modalities of treatment coming up every year that are making it more possible to live with the disease, and people do it. But our son had the most severe um, iteration of the disease you can have. So it's the kind of decision that you'd want to kind of postpone until he can make it for himself, right? So that's what we were thinking. Maybe we just keep the kid alive until he turns 18 and he can decide yeah. whether or not to have this risky procedure to cure himself, right? Yeah. So, but, the, but two things. One, his disease was such that it's likely that he could have not made it to 18, but also the chances of success of this particular procedure go down considerably after um, you know the patient is beyond a certain age. It gets more complicated the older you get, right? It's still, again, I want to say that they have wonderful track record, but your odds of success nevertheless diminish when you get past a certain age. Um, in his in, in his situation, that's what he was told. So you know it wouldn't necessarily be that kind to uh, postpone the decision. And the other thing is, frankly, I'm not proud of this, but living with the disease, which we tried for three or four years, um, was itself such a stressor and such a daily grind that it ended up kind of um, almost fracturing our family to be on the point of repair. So it was clear after a couple of years of trying to kind of, you know, wait it out and gather data and make an informed decision and don't rush anything. It became clear after he turned about three that we were going to have to essentially roll the dice with the bone marrow transplant um, because the alternative was just tearing us apart. 
Yeah. So then at that point, uh, you wound up uh, at Duke, right? Duke was the place to go. Duke uh, the pediatric unit, that's where they were doing this kind of bone marrow transplant. And one of the things that I, I think that not everybody knows about, which is, I think is an important point in the book, when you, is the, the, the cord blood, you t- you know, the, which was involved in the transplant, um, and how important that is, um, in, not just in terms of, your, of Sebastian's disease, but all kinds of diseases. So talk to us about that. Yeah, well, to be honest, the, the science of this and learning about it was one of the most kind of uplifting and sustaining um, practices for me. And I don't purport to be either a doctor or a professional medical journalist. I, this is my first foray into medical journalism in the book. But there's a lot to know, and it's really fascinating. And as I said, it's, it's very encouraging. Uh, but here's the situation. You know, so we're talking about bone marrow transplantation, which people have kind of heard of, but they don't know much about. I was one of those people. And when you hear it described, it sounds pretty simple, right? You just annihilate the existing immune system and white blood cells with chemo. You insert some, some, some cells from a donor, some good cells. They then replicate and engraft, and you build up a new immune system from scratch. And when you describe it like that, it sounds as easy as baking a lasagna. But the fact of the matter is it's extraordinarily challenging at every step of the way. And for us, um, one of the challenges was just finding a match, uh, I am of Latino heritage. My wife, as I mentioned, uh, is of a, a number of things, including uh, Scandinavian heritage. And that, as a result, produced a very rare um, allele type or blood type in our children. So there just aren't that many uh, people out there who are um, good matches. Uh, God bless them, everybody, by the way, who's uh, volunteering to be in the uh, National Don Marrow Bone Marrow Donor Database. Uh, that is strongly encouraged, of course. Um, but in our case, we couldn't find one. So we had to kind of, you know, skip from plan A to plan B to plan C to plan D. And what we ultimately ended up, the option of last resort, was using umbilical cord blood from an unrelated donor. And the reason that that worked was because umbilical cord blood, which until recently was considered medical waste, turns out to be this miraculous source of uh, donor cells uh, that can are so malleable that even if they're not a perfect match by the normal measurements, they can work. They can engraft. And um, Duke, which you mentioned, uh, is one of the places that really pioneered this particular form of transplantation using umbilical cord blood. And on top of that, they had a special protocol for transplanting with my son's particular condition. So basically, it was one of two places in the country that we could have seriously considered um, and so when we decided to do it, we went that way. But it was just finding the match, just making it you know, possible, was itself a years-long process. And we were very blessed to ultimately um, find a match there and, and be able to proceed. How did your marriage survive this? I mean, this, I kept, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, how did you do it? I know you said your wife turned to religion, you turned to science. Sometimes it came together on those issues, but how, I mean, that to me was just, you know, going through, what, I, what did I say in the beginning, six years, but it's not just six years, it's a lifetime of, of, of all of this and making these decisions. And I mean, I know, you know, money, meds and medication and, and alcohol help, but how did you do it? How are you doing it? Well, we're in a good place right now, um, I'm, I'm happy to say. Um, we're, you know... Right now, she's on a call. I'm on this call. We're functioning as a you know, 
professionals living and working out of our house and keeping it all together. Um, but, you know, that's the happy ending that took <laughs> years, <laughs> years to get to. And by the way, I, I, I want to make it very clear that I am still a work in progress. Our relationship is still a work in progress. We are we consider ourselves much more thought followers than thought leaders. We, we, we should be receiving advice rather than giving advice. Uh, but to tell the story accurately, I would tell you that, you know, when the, when the diagnosis first hit, when you, when you first started getting sick, you know, it was kind of a bonding experience. Like, yes, we're having this terrible challenge with our child, but, you know, we're, we're working on it together. We're a team. And, you know, marriage in a lot of ways is working as a team, whether it's whatever the challenge is, if it's buying a house or dealing with, um, you know, a, a professional challenge or, in this case, a health issue. And we're, you know, bonded together. High five. And then the diagnosis hit, and then we realized this wasn't just like a tough spot we're going to kind of get through in a couple of weeks or months. It's like a lifetime. And it just changes the whole dynamic. And in my situation, it just began this slow, grinding deterioration of my own kind of mental fortitude and stability and ability to compartmentalize. And, you know, again, both my kind of projections for the future and my understanding of myself started getting subsumed in this rising tide of anxiety and fear and sadness and anger right? Because there's an inherent unfairness to this, right? <laughs> All yeah. your friends, in our case, you know, are, they've got healthy kids, and they're debating whether or not to go to, you know, wonderful, you know, vacation spot A or wonderful vacation spot B on uh, spring break. Well, we're debating whether to go to, you know, Children's Hospital Transplantation Center A or Children's Hospital Transplantation Center B. So you find yourself getting bitter and somewhat resentful about the unfairness of life. And, um, yeah. Well, in the so, book, you, you know, when you talk about that, you say because you have all of what happens before and the decisions you make in the transplant, but then there's the post, you know, after when you go home and, you know, your friends are, you know, they're upset because their steak in the restaurant came out uh, well done instead of rare. And you've been through and are going through all of this kind of changes your relationships with other people, the people you want to socialize with. It's not just, you know, you get the transplant and everything physically is okay, but there's all this mental and social stuff that comes into play. But you t but you went into therapy. I think this is important. I think it's important for people to hear. You did go into counseling, both of you together at different times during this whole process or evolution. Yes. I, I, I'm proud to say we've churned through... Uh, Five marriage counselors in it at various points. Now we, we there was a move in there, so that explains some of the. Then we've kind of you know uh, we we've exhausted some and some have exhausted us. But yes, um, that's and just kind of ad admitting whatever, accepting however whatever verb you want to use, you know, embracing the reality that you know we are being faced with a situation that is title of the book more than you can handle. So what do you do in those situations? Well, for me, it took a long time, but to finally kind of release certain kind of hang-ups and probably, you know, macho um, misconceptions about what it meant to need help and get help. Uh, but then we, we did it. Uh, and it, again, we're still a work in progress, but we're very much together. And it really helped give us the vocabulary and the tools and the awareness, um, kind of the, the thousand-foot 
view of what some of the dynamics are in our communications and our decision making and our and our value systems that prevent excuse me that present certain landmines that we then have to identify and either sidestep or preferably diffuse yeah I, I think you said um, at the end you know at times you, you know obviously all of this this emotional stuff is up and down constantly but at the end you said the two of you are together because no one has shared what you've shared I mean that no one's going to even it would be difficult for anybody else if you got a divorce for anybody else to even relate to your situation in your life I thought that was I mean I think that's that's so true um, I think that's what you said at at the very end when you're talking about your marriage and 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 working on it and um yeah i mean I, I i in many ways you could look at my wife and i and say that we're very different people and be kind of somewhat surprised that our our marriage has lasted 16 years on the other hand you could look at us and say we're not even two different people at all we're kind of two halves of the same person that have been kind of welded together you know, by the acetylene torch of this of this very intense experience with our child, um, and it's it largely because of what you were saying earlier. There's many times when we just find ourselves unable to relate to the outside world because of the, this experience that we've had that has kind of realigned our perspective on a lot of things. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that you know we both have committed to the relationship to the point that we're you know admitting that neither of us is perfect and that we can um, constantly have work to do, but that there's a baseline of commonality and a baseline yeah. of shared of shared experience that makes it hard to imagine, frankly, um, being divorced. I mean, people do it. By the way, if, if, if you, there are plenty of people who get divorced and they have their reasons, and I'm not in, in, the, least, in the least bit judging them. I'm just saying in my situation, it's, it's hard for me to envision, you know, like putting together a, E-harmony profile and going out for uh, a dinner and making conversation. And good luck. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be I'm hard sure to. I, yeah. I, I yeah. interrupt you because I have so many more questions and we only have three minutes left because I really wanted to know how just like Sebastian's mental health right now because he's uh, in one minute. Can you tell us? And then everybody just has to go out and buy the book and then. They may have more questions for you, so I'm going to ask you websites and uh, to go to for more information about you and about the book. So, yeah. Um, so, I mean, like I said, you know, it, it's a book about sick kids. So, you know, that's kind of a daunting challenge for somebody to want to read. But I will say this: uh, it has a happy ending. Our son just this morning trundled off to fourth grade. Um, he's congratulations. Uh, thank you. He doesn't have to have any kind of medication or any kind of environmental restriction. Uh, of course, they're making them wear masks in school, um, but he's certainly used to that. So um, we're, we're very, very fortunate, and um, certainly on a daily basis, but specifically in, in interviews like this, it's wonderful. It gives me a chance to kind of reflect and um, just kind of appreciate and, and stand back in awe, frankly, on um, the amazing abilities that our, our current medical uh, professionals have um, curing deadly diseases. So he's a success story. That's great. And, you know, I was just thinking, this is just kind of 30 seconds left, but uh, you mentioned that he has to wear a mask and quarantine. Like, he's really prepared for this pandemic, so much more prepared than so many people, um, given 
and you as a family also, not just Sebastian. But anyway, okay, websites to go to for uh, more information. Or sure. a website. So I have a, I have a little website, miguelsancho.net, not .com. I believe .com is taken by a Spanish model. Um, oh, so right. miguelsancho.net, um, if you're interested in a little bit more. But the book is also available on, you know, where you buy books. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, hopefully your local bookstore. Uh, they certainly can order it. Uh, it's in a lot of libraries if you'd just like to check it out. So it's available where, wherever fine books are sold, including yeah. mine. <laughs> Great book. It's a good story, but it's uh, also really well written. I mean, I could, I actually download, I read it on my computer. But anyway, great talking to you, Miguel. Thanks so much for sharing the story today. It's very, very kind of you to have me, and, and thanks again to your audience. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 